Welcome to Mystic and the Skeptic uh, Radio Show and Podcast. Uh, today we have a special panel discussing uh, rays in this part of the world. Um, the reason that we're doing the show is because we've been part of this. People say it's been the last four years, actually it's been going on for a long time, where there's um, all kinds of misinformation, misdirection, uh, rewriting of history, or deconstructing history of all kinds of things related to people that live in this side of the world and the way that they're identified, the way that the race is used either against them. Mm -hmm. And we are talking about the tone policing. And then also from my point of view, things, yeah, tone policing. And when I had to learn that one even, I was like, oh, I was taught I had, as a woman, I have to speak quietly and softly to be heard. So I was tone policing. It's like, oh, you're saying that, but say it in the way I want to hear it. And it was like, oh, no, wait a minute. I have to listen to what's being said. <laughs> like, what's the, what's actually being said? And it's not, it's not your, like, it's not a person's job to, it's not, it's, it's so, it's so many layers of, of dis like, for even to hear you saying like, mm, I've got to listen to all of that. Thanks for sharing how you have to understand my daily, you know, Oh, it's uncomfortable for you to hear about. Oh, that was my, that was, that was a person in my community. Like I don't get to choose to hear it or not, you know? So that when a white, when a Caucasian that, oh, it's so painful to learn about how hard it is out there, you know, like, it's like, yeah, it is. They love E, right? <laughs> um, so one call I put out a lot is like, it's not up to those that have been stepped on to teach you how it hurts them that you're stepping on them. It's up to you to figure out where you're putting your feet, you know, like it's, yeah. Anyway, well, gentlemen. <laughs> no, I, I think that, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. There you go, I'm sorry. No, I just think that, I mean, it's what a gift um that you're giving to take the time to listen to someone else to meet them where they are and then kind of guide them through you know another perspective or another way of seeing things and i think it's it's um that's a challenge because it can really uh, drain you <laughs> if mm -hmm. if it's on you to do that but i think that it's beautiful that you recognize the potential that they may not get it during your conversation, but they may wake up another day and have that epiphany and be like, wow, <laughs> you know, and really get it. And that that to me makes uh, that kind of patience and understanding worthwhile. But I also understand um, the angry warrior too, the person that says, it's not my job to make this person feel comfortable. <laughs> it's not my job to, to educate them on this, that, and the other. They need to, you know, they need to learn it they need to put, put put some work into it. Um, and that you see that with the tone police. I can't hear what you're saying unless you say it the way I think you should say it. And I, I, when you guys, when both of you were talking, it also made me think of cancel culture uh, as well, and how that sometimes plays out in our efforts to to address an issue, issues of race and other issues. But um, I wanted, I, I think that we just have to decide what know what role we're we're we have to decide what role we want to play and recognize or recognize the one the one that we are in these situations um but i was thinking about allies as you were talking about the angry warrior um the, what, that example and it made me and i think i've shared this before with um with um david and angela i'm not sure but I always think of it as like there's a you're trying to reach a certain destination, whether it's the table, your seat at the table. And in order to get there, there you're going to need support to make it happen. And sometimes it's going to be from someone who can read a map. <laughs> they can help read the map. They can take you on the journey. Some folks are going to put gas in your car. Someone might have to drive you there. And it's just recognizing. Um, Recognize seeing, seeing people where they are and recognizing what they can can give and contribute to the situation and what they can't. I mean, if they don't know how to drive, you know, you don't get upset and angry with them. That's just not something that they can do on this particular uh, road trip, <laughs> you know. And and I think that making a space where people can uh, make mistakes and still be uh, an ally or still be uh, 
uh, a vessel for change is important. Um, so, yeah, I loved hearing you speak about that. I just think that uh, it's so important and, and folks that do that don't often get the um, recognition or support that they deserve because it's that's work. <laughs> it's it's some serious work. That's and that's all I wanted to say. Amber, before we move forward, um, can you share about the issue of, of violence against Native American or sorry, indigenous or First Nation women in Canada? Because um, something that comes to mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, it almost sounds like there's this idea from colonial times or I don't know where that people are disposable. So it, it, has that ever come up that just like there had to be a movement to say that black lives matter because they don't matter to a lot of people? Is that what is happening that um, people are used and abused and there's nobody to look into it? And, and it saddens me because we always want to flee to Canada as like a refuge of progressive politics and inequality and then you tell me that they're still doing all these horrible things and i guess they pretend to be more european or even the europeans are growing up so tell us about um like when when you do studies of of uh domestic violence sexual assault um they talk about like the causes and like the culture around it but um what what has been like the latest like overall picture of, of why are these things happening so much? Well, that's actually an interesting topic because I actually in Canada advocate often just to wake Canadians up to themselves. Like you should see how many people on Facebook will post a lot of Black Lives Matter stuff, which is awesome, but turned a completely blind eye to stuff that's happening in Canada. And so, like, literally simultaneously with the George Floyd incident, we had three First Nations shot by police officer in Winnipeg, Manitoba in April, and you couldn't find anything. You couldn't find posts about it. It was, like, completely buried. And so Canadians like to pretend that they are, like, very not racist, and those south of the border, those racists belong down there. That's a very big thing. Um, it's it's it's... I, I would say that we're behind where the Black Lives Movement is. Um, we haven't even gotten a hello, like, never mind, you know. So when we closed down Canada, for instance, the Wet'suwet'en, that was, you know, very racially, like, there was, you should have seen the stuff that was being said, like, you know, they should just run us over, like, all kinds of things and we're literally trying to save headwaters which would feed all the way down into Washington and Oregon. So it's not like we're just being selfish in our fight but um, as far as the murdered and missing women, um, where I'm from is the territory called the Highway of Tears. It's notorious. There's something like 1900 missing women and girls in that territory just in the last 30 years. So that's like people from my nation and neighboring nations. Um, it really does come down to the fact that nobody's caring and nobody's looking for them. So I get asked a lot what I think it is. And I think, and this is systemic across Canada. It's actually systemic in your country as well, um, where there's just an abundance of murdered and missing women and girls who are indigenous. And they are murdered and just completely missing to the degree that it's 10 to 12 times more likely a First Nations under 35 will get meet a fate of like rape or killing or go missing than a Caucasian. And that's kind of crazy considering that we're less than 5% of the population. Like how can less than 5% of the population have a 10 times more likelihood per capita? Like that's wild. And it's been going on for decades. So, you know, there's certainly going to be a, a man camps are going to be an issue where, you know, industry man camps, definitely, because these men just fly all over the place and they're in one area for a couple weeks over the next. And there's an opportunity there. If you know that, you know, that when somebody of a First Nations goes missing and the police literally just go, yeah, okay, another one, and just put the file away, then who's, who's your likely target? And then, you know, we even had like a 
in Canada, we are Justin Trudeau's very first term. We had a murder to missing inquiry and there was a lot of money spent, a lot of time where they literally went and asked a lot of questions to different First Nations. And, you know, it's just collecting dust now. So they opened up all the wounds all over again, had people share their stories and they came down and said, Canada is racist against their First Nations people. The UN has actually said this as well because of the Site C uh, dam in northern British Columbia, as well as the uh, the Wet'suwet'en pipeline. So the UN has actually said also Canada is racist against their First Nations people, and have actually ordered both of those to be like halted. But Canada is continuing to go forward with those projects, and so it's not even really being acknowledged. It's being given like. Justin Trudeau's happy smile, like he's doing something, but nothing is actually happening. Um, we have currently across the country, we have the, I'm gonna say it completely around the Sepwemic, who are land claiming down in Northern BC. We have the lobster fishermen over on the East Coast who are currently fighting. We have some, uh, the Six Nations in Ontario who are fighting for their land. Uh, we have the Mohawk and we have the Wet'suwet'en. Currently, these are like seven nations that are currently fighting with the government of Canada over treaty rights that were in some incidences in place 250 years. The Wet'suwet'en have a Supreme Court of Canada like ruling like the highest court in Canada has ruled that we have the sovereignty over that land, but it just goes, it's not enacted in law. So we're continuously to fight, fighting this and no Canadian is saying like, what? There's a Supreme Court ruling, it should be in law, but it's like we're everybody's still systemically racist about it and we should just accept this as our fate. Um, you know, as a 44 year old woman, mine's only four times as likely now of meeting that kind of fate. So as you get older, you kind of age out of the MMIWG, but it's a big problem. And we just act like it's not a problem at all. And and it's funny because, uh, by the way, when I go to Central and South America, I didn't realize it until my second visit, but I feel super comfortable there. And I realized that it's because I don't experience racism there. I blend better. Well, this, the issue of being a minority, you know, uh, the native population of Mexico, like the, I don't know if that's a, a correct term or is even a racist term, like full-blooded uh, native population versus the mestizo and the Spaniards or the criollos, um, they're a minority in the sense of like, they're invisible and not fully embraced by the rest of the population. And they're experiencing the same type of violence in uh, Ciudad Juarez. And it's similar, like, most likely it's even the police who's doing it. And I listened to a podcast where they try to find all the culprits, and it turns out it was everybody. Uh, and and that's what's so disturbing, that, like, um, it, 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 can, it happens on the other side of the border, but it happens here, too, with human trafficking and with um, – and when people are not organized or don't have a voice or they're dismissed because their the population is small – then it's easier for people to get away with it. Uh, the one thing that this country is contending with is that the population is changing and that the numbers are growing. And I feel that there's a, a push to try to like suppress those communities. But a lot of my friends say that that's not true and that, that I'm just making stuff up. So you were talking about warriors or, you know, I don't know if this is a social justice warrior situation, but... I want to, since you guys are so diplomatic and so lovely, <laughs> I want to put it uh, before you and see how you have you would react because I lost it when I heard this. So uh, two days ago, you know, we're recording this around the time where we're trying to figure out who's the real president of the U.S. It's going to play later, but uh, bear with us. So a friend of mine who I thought he was a saint, He's like the nicest guy, very progressive. Um, I'm sure it has to do with the information that he gets, but he said the following. He said, if the Republicans lose, if the Republicans win, I see the Democrats riding in the streets. If the Republic, if the Democrats win, I don't think the Republicans will do anything at all. And you know, in the surface, 
there's nothing weird about that statement. It's just one party is violent and the other one is not. Okay, so let's just leave it at that. But I can read between the lines and I have um, a media literacy background, so I know what he means. But this is a very cool guy and he says he has um, friends from all kinds of backgrounds and stuff like that, but I just lost it. And, and I attacked by saying, that's like the, the most racist thing I ever heard. And he's like, I didn't mention race. I mentioned the blues and the reds, you know? And I was like, you know that for the last 30 years, they've been saying that the Democrats are the party of the minorities. And what do people usually say about minorities? That they're violent, that they're savages, that they are people who um, are criminals. So for you to say that the, the party that has the most minorities is going to create havoc and it's going to put everybody at risk, and then the other guys are just going to be like, okay, whatever. It's not only a lie, but it's like the worst lie that can be pushed in a race-baiting way because there's an FBI report that the greatest danger to American safety are white supremacist groups. And most white supremacist groups are supporters of that other party. Um, is that me being crazy and just hypersensitive and assuming that people are are evil or is it... Is that the kind of dog whistle that, you know, it goes back to like people that look white or think white or are around a lot of white people. You can say something like that and everybody like, oh yeah. And I remember when, when there was the protest and there was uh, some looting and stuff like that. Um, I was wondering why is this happening? But then people would come to me and say, hey man, uh, things are getting out of hand. Like, you know, I'm cool with supporting causes and stuff like that. But when they start breaking things, like, you know, I'm out and, you know, why is it turning that way? And so now there's this idea that everybody who has a, an issue or unhappy with what's going on, they're gonna turn into violence. So then it's easier to to smash them because they're violent people. Um, so I don't know if, what comes to mind when you hear something like that. And is that a dog whistle or am I just crazy? <laughs> well, first of all, it's like serious gaslighting. So I've heard this many times, and in Canada, we don't have a two-party system, so it's not as clear the lines, but we definitely have them still. And I've heard this so often with the riots of the BLM and stuff, and it's like, the Democrats, let's, okay, if we're going to make it about a party, they maybe are get like, it's, it's the, what am I trying to say? Okay, the Republicans, it's like white white privilege at its finest, that statement. It's like, we they don't have to make a stink. That's the point. The Democrats or the people who support the Democratic Party have to make a stink because the Republicans are suppressing everybody else who's trying to vote for the Democrats unless they're, you know, there's some people who are assimilating with the Republicans. But like the statement in of itself almost proves the fact that there is a racist intent. Like you're saying that because yeah, they're going to uprise because you have a racist president, a president who has basically created a race war in the United States. So, I mean, and again, I'm coming from Canada, so like I'm just watching and to me, you guys have a race civil war happening and everybody's just turning a blind eye to it. So of course you're gonna rise up against that. And if that in any rise up or uh, revolution often has some kind of like, you know, building that gets burned or something like that's just <laughs> what happens. But yeah. So, no, I don't think you were overreacting at all. I think it's just white privilege at its finest, that statement. I could see how if I heard that, you know, I could understand your reading is common in that way. Um, and I, I feel like I understand it because I I, under, I understand clearly that my skin communicates things <laughs> that I have no control over to, you know, other folks in general, but uh, particularly to white American. And then black Americans have been criminalized so much in this country. You know, even when we talk about even throughout, the, well, be, before the election, when 
whenever people raise or just politicians typically when they talk about issues that are of importance, they don't really get beyond um, criminal justice reform, <laughs> you know, uh, jails uh, and things and uh, poverty, uh, joblessness, things like that. Uh, there are other, there's a wide variety of concerns that never get addressed, but I don't want to go too far into that. I just think that uh, in, in your comment made me think of um, Tom Brokaw. I don't know if you, do you all know who that is? He's a fairly well-known journalist uh, that's retired years ago. They brought him back on one of the news segments about the um, the, the election, and he said that uh, African-Americans were protesting and it's their right, but then they they start um, looting and burning things down and that he has a problem with that. That's more or less what he said. And it was just a, such a shock to be thrown into this pile of people that, that have decided to do that um, because um, I don't think that that's I think people are seeing they're they're seeing what they what they've been told told is a um, truth rather than taking the time to actually look and observe and try and understand um, the experiences of, of uh, black folks in this country. So that's a long way of saying I I could see I could understand you being upset about that. My, but when you when you raise the question, I just wondered why he felt why your friend felt it was okay to say that to you. And what does that say? Well, does that say anything? He was saying it to the air, like, "Hey guys, uh, look what's going to happen." And they've said stuff before, like, "the the Democrats are all about taking care of people and and um, like bribing them or giving them stuff, and the Republicans are about um, hard work and you know get it yourself and don't depend on anybody." So it's like it's propaganda and and you can't blame people for you hear propaganda so much and if you don't think critically you start believing it that's fine but when you start talking about safety that's that's those are the the things that, that bother me because in Guatemala when the US was supporting um, the dictator whatever over there all he had to say is the native population are a bunch of communists and you know the communists are godless and uh, gonna tear down our country and turn it into uh, another dictatorship or whatever. So then they gave uh, the military the mandate to go ahead and murder everyone because they had this red scare in Guatemala. And I've met survivors who came to America as refugees coming out of that. And what's interesting is the U.S. was supporting on one hand the massacre and on the other hand they were letting people flee the massacre. So they were like on, on both sides of, of the issue. And now you hear that stuff coming out from the current president that people are enemies of the state or that he's going to throw people in jail for 10 years for tearing down a statue. And like there's all this like draconian stuff going on. But going back to the issue of like, like you said, lumping people in, in a group of, of violent um, rebel rousers or are the hardest thing about protesters in the U.S. is that it's like it's the best place to protest and it's the worst place to protest because America is so powerful that all they have to do is say, you know, that that guy looked at me the wrong way or I could see terroristic intent in what he was doing and that's it. Like, you're, you're done. So um, I, I see that everybody's putting their lives on the line when they speak out. And like people would say about places like Palestine and other places, like who who would put themselves in, in that position? Only a person who's truly oppressed. If you were doing okay, you would never go out during COVID and try to pick fights. Like why? Why would you do that? You have to be insane. But they turn around like they are insane. They've always been insane. And that's why we have to have like more rules and more ways to keep them uh, at bay. So I know it's a very complicated issue and, and we could talk about it all night, but my Can I add one thing? Yeah. 
Gerald? No, I just, I mean, I think going back to Amber's point, that's always going to be a part in some form or fashion of um, any kind of protest that where people are literally out. I mean, if you're out in the streets screaming, please don't shoot me, stop killing people <laughs> in my community, and no one ever, no one's listening, people are going to become more and more desperate. And some may take the route of, um, you know, um, looting or, or take advantage of the situation. I mean, I think that people have the capacity to separate the purpose of a march or protest from folks that are there to try and take advantage of it or use it as a shield to do things that they, they get that, they understand that. What I wish people would focus more on is that uh, people and their suffering is more important than the things that they seem to cherish so much. And I feel that way. I learned that lesson after Katrina, uh, when I lived in New Orleans, you know, people were left to die. You know, when they brought in the National Guard um, around the um, Superdome, you know, these folks had guns drawn on American citizens, but they had food, they had water, they got, they got them in. But the folks who were desperate in need of support, you know, they were just dehumanized and they weren't. And it made it and that made it easy to um, it was almost as if. How dare you be poor and not be able to get out of the city? <laughs> you know, it's just there. It's a lot more to it than just saying, um, you know, these people are going to riot. Loot. Um, we we got to stop acting like these things are more important than the suffering of people. Well, um I know we've gone long, but if you guys have another 10, 15 minutes, I want to bring up uh, the one topic I wanted to discuss. Okay. I get in trouble a lot for being too critical of my so-called community. Um, so is there room for for that? Because the one thing that I, that I think we can fall into is either romanticizing a group or demonizing a group. So it's like, you know, in our circle would be white people. So when people start like, well, white people do this and white people do that, or all white people have privilege, something like that. I started thinking like, well, if you are a poor farmer during colonial times, that was one situation. Now, if you were a plantation, uh, you know, master, that's something else. Well, what if you were someone that just came in from, from wherever, um, this uh, Soviet uh, bloc in the last 30 years, you have uh, a foot in the door because of the way that you look, but you still have some of the issues of being an immigrant where the language, things like that. So this idea that we could categorize everyone from one group as uh, oppressors or as supremacists or as this or that, it starts getting very complicated because there's different generations, there's different, uh, there's a caste system among white people when it comes down to uh, the class and things like that, or education, and and what the evil people that we all have problems with, and as kind as loving as we can be, there's our evil people out there. What they try to do is they try to pin everybody against each other. So it's so it's easy for the progressive movement to be dismissed as anti-white or anti-European or Western or something like that. But if you're able to acknowledge that we were all born into this and it's what you make out of it. So, so I've always been a big proponent of like the allies are like people who have maybe a voice or a, a place on the table and they can use that as a springboard for the other communities that don't have that opportunity. So, but is it, is it reasonable to be worried that some of our communities can be romanticized as uh, almost like sinless, like, because I'm the first one to say, like, there are people who are trying to um, to make us look bad or who do things that are problematic and then it builds up to the stereotype or it creates more, more havoc. So how do we challenge our own um, co-ethnic um, group, whatever we're from, to be their best without sounding as like, oh, we're telling them to to become more tame or more assimilated or to uh, give in to the system when there are certain things that are problematic no matter who does them. And there are jerks in every community. So 
I feel that if you ever come out as critical of something, then you're they call you a sellout or they call you an appeaser. Uh, do you guys think about that, or is that something that um, that it is kind of created within ourselves? Maybe it's our own insecurity, like we can't be our full selves because we're afraid that we're going to be misjudged. Um, has that ever come up in, in your conversation? Um, I'll jump in just because I don't want to forget. Because uh, what you were asking brought up a few things. One thing I was thinking about is that appreciation of regardless of where you're at. I was talking about this with a friend the other day. I remember being in high school and being a little punk and I was in a school that was an art school and there were jocks and then the art kids didn't understand that the jocks could feel pain because they were so privileged and what I saw was just a whole bunch of kids trying to everybody was trying to just there's pain regardless of where they were it's just a different style a different type so that understanding like what you were saying like every every person within their intersectional space has has something to be working through um, so that's just like an empathy of human. If we're bringing the kindest parts out, then there's that cross, fighting a cross. And for me, I have a hard time within the gender, within the communities, like the feminist community, there's quite a lot of cross fighting. And I find that energy to be, for me, it's a bit it sounds like I'm doing what I'm about to say I don't think is helpful, but I, I guess I am. And that's where there's like, oh, it's just so it's so layered. But why are we fighting each other when there's when there's something much bigger than all of us that, that if we work together, um, those little differences, uh, we white rate like race, gender, it's there's a patriarchal system that's based on money that's taking away joy from everything underneath it. Um, so how to work together as opposed to like, like if you judge another, it's usually something in yourself you're upset about. Um, so I'm saying that right now, I'm, what I'm showing right now is that awkwardness of something new is being learned and I'm seeing both sides inside me and inside others. So it's, a, it's, that's a really good question that you've just asked because <laughs> what it brought up for me was ideas of ignorance of just not like trying to act before we fully understand what we're hearing. Like there's like so much cultural trauma, so much like racial trauma intermingled her heritage trauma that everybody's reacting in a different way. And then we're judging how we're reacting as opposed to just, okay, like what is happening? What are you feeling? What are you feeling? What are you feeling before actions made? So I just got myself in a little, Circle, your question was great. <laughs> That's me messy over here, so I'm done. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good points. Amber? Well, I think it, like we keep coming back to this idea of assimilation. You know, I, I love what you're asking, and I've certainly struggled with a similar conversation with myself about, you know, and and even in the last six months, I'd say like I'm just looking more, thinking more and more about this idea of assimilation. And I remember, like for instance, my grandparents would tell my their kids and and uh, or their grandchildren that we had to like always dress very well to go into town. You know, hair perfect in braids, dressed perfectly in order to just be seen as like non-savage. You know not to get the same kind of respect, but just to like not be seen as savages. And, you know, we've definitely, I think, obviously made headway in that. I don't have to do that same extreme nowadays, but I'm challenging myself in my own thoughts around what, what are like these judgments? Are they judgments for the betterment of our healing process? Or are they judgments because it's what we've been, you know, taught since birth? So, like, for instance, dress codes, um, you know, when you talk about, say, like, the black community of Los Angeles and these, the dress that they tend to wear, the urban outfit, 
it's it's there's nothing wrong with that but you know we expect that everybody wears a certain thing to a job interview so like as a business owner i'm even trying to sit with that myself like if it's well put together and it's their uniform then you know what does it matter and i'm a former street kid so i kind of resonate with that which probably makes it easier for me to accept that kind of thing in a hair salon but you know this is what i think as society we need to start to break down as well like are we asking cultural differences to assimilate to one look or are we asking them to better themselves and i think that's the question we have to be asking when we are coming back to our own communities um and obviously when we talk about statistics or stereotyping those exist for a reason you know like when when people say like well the crimes are being committed not always we know that like statistically the crimes aren't always being committed or like kids are in foster care because their parents can't take care of them but then we know that as we peel those layers there's reasons and traumas behind it so i think in asking a community to or saying you need to do better we also have to realize that they can't just do better without the healing happening first you know like it's sort of like putting the cart before the horse so to speak so i think in the latin community the black community the first nations communities like we really need to work hard heavy on healing them as well to get to that place where a certain amount of them can like rise up and you know you also brought up something that i find very interesting which is different types of privilege you know there's like gender privileges there's class privileges there's race privileges because something like i'm a former street kid so it's there was a lot of like different races but there was also white kids but a lot of those white kids typically were poor and you know and reflecting on that i actually think it's sometimes harder to be a poor white kid you know they got bullied a lot more we just kind of get it every day to a certain degree but like i felt like my white friends who were super poor they just got like beat up more and like put in the garbage cans and stuff like that so i think there's like i don't know it's it's debatable whether class or race puts you near the bottom or not but and that's just like judgments i think of white people on their own to not be poor So I want to make sure that I understand the, the question. Are you asking, are we reluctant to um, critique our own communities out of fear of being pushed out of the community? I'm trying to make sure I understand what you're asking, David. Yeah, and, and I don't know if any of you guys have experienced this about um, marrying outside of your community because uh, I had a friend, and this is, you know, Angela was talking about mixed race or mixed backgrounds. I had a friend that he was a bunch of different mixtures, but he came out dark skin. And then his wife was a bunch of different mixtures and she came out light skin. And his um, fellow um, uh, African-Americans um, were telling him that, like there was this kind of like hazing, like, oh, we can see that that you went outside of a community. And I hear that in the Latino community as well, uh, but there are other components. So um, there's a thing about when do you lose your status or your place? You mentioned that in, in Canada, there was some of that where you actually could choose to, to opt out. Um, but when you, when you become, uh, an, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, you know, Bill Cosby and Obama uh, were um, were very uh, stereotypically critical of certain members of their community, and since then they lost a lot of uh, of credibility because they were like doing cheap shots at at kids or at people that even other groups criticize. So sometimes it feels like people have to do that to get accepted when among whites they have to come against their own people so then they're like oh you mean, know, he understands this you mean respectability politics i think that is that what it's term. Term. i think like so lateral violence no well self-hating or whatever but 
But is, is it always self-hating in that, or is it sometimes is actually appropriate as you're trying to help people um, be their best and, and break out of the stereotypes and break out of the, the hateful representations that they have of us? That's a, it's a big question. I mean, I'm thinking lots of things. Um, I don't know. I think I would, I would simply say the, it's, of course, it's okay to critique members of your, the community you identify with, you know, if your intent is to build them up and make them better. But I also think that it's important to recognize that, you know, there, there's this, there's always this outside gaze on your community that you're aware of. So when Amber's mom told her, well, maybe you need to dress a certain way, you know, the things, you hear that with you may you may uh, do certain things to uh, to push your group towards assimilation because um, it, it's going to help with your survival. Um, where I'm going with this is there. I think that there are different conversations. People have to recognize that there are different conversations. I might be upset with black people who use the word Nick, but that conversation within my community is very different from someone outside of the community critiquing mm -hmm. the use of that word. I'm not, and I'm not sure if this is really clear, but it's just there, the, the conversation that comes from within um, I don't think, I don't think of it as um, if it's, if it's intended to nurture and build up, I think, well, I like believing that it's going to be received that way, but I also um, recognize that there are certain uh, well, I'm not really sure how to say it. I think that there you just have to recognize that there are different conversations. Um, when I grew up as a kid, you know, I was told you always have to have a receipt. Don't ever go to a store and leave without a receipt. Or, you know, there were certain ways you had to carry yourself or present yourself. And that was really focused on you surviving. And so I think there was there was a time when that critique was just, you know, it was understood that's just something that you did. Um, and it, and you also were aware that there was this ongoing gaze from outside of your community that had already prejudged or predetermined who you were or how you were and or what your worth was, that you couldn't give you couldn't give them evidence that they were right, you know? And so I don't know how far, I, I'm not sure how close that is to your question, but I do think that I'm fine with the critique and being critiqued because I feel like um, it's important to know uh, how others view us and the things that they, they may project onto us and how it's going to affect the quality of our lives. And I think that, um, and folks outside of my generation may not feel the same way, but um, does that answer your question? And yes, and it goes back to our original premise of how do we define ourselves? And, and building that power. In one of our conversations, you mentioned that um, the black power um, sign means that, that we wanna share the power or that uh, your community would like to have some of the power that is that has uh, been like hogged or like they, they won't let it go. So I think to empower different communities, we have to um, create opportunities for them to be empowered. So, um, I'm looking forward that now we have more representatives from different groups um, in the in the U.S. Congress and Senate, and a, a lot of it is a backlash from all the normalizing of racism. It actually made people uh, fight back by by running for for office. So uh, it's that is a hopeful thing, but I think it is going to be a very difficult transition to a more equitable and more um, what is the representational um, world? And to, to finish off, um, is there such a thing as um, as First Nation representatives in the Canadian government? 
Yeah, there was actually a big controversy. Um, we had a woman who was actually, um, she made it, she was actually the attorney general. Is that right, Angela? The attorney general. And then there was a big uh, scandal where she wouldn't do something the prime minister wanted her to do. And so he fired her from that position. And she recently just ran again as an independent and won her seat. So that was kind of a big deal because she was an independent. But it's it's not common. Common. Few and far between. There's Very much so. Like, um, what is it? Like, there's, again, a lot of talk about the, the, the words, but no actual action in Canada. It's like, oh, no, but we're so good. Look, we're acknowledging land. It's like, but you're still living <laughs> on it. <laughs> so that's why when we did our, our intros, I was a bit like, hmm, I don't. There's still that to hold space for how to. OK, I'm not making sense, but. Um, never mind, I'll get back to it. <laughs> Well, well, we'll end on that note. I have a comment after uh, this. Gerald, did you have something to share? No, just that, um, you know, I was telling Angela that what she said made sense. Mm. You stopped abruptly. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, okay, I got it back. Thank you. Um, it's that, it's that I mean, words of action. So in a lot of organizations here, there's a, there's a respect and a, and a place curved out for Indigenous, um, usually a voice or a person, a representative, but a lot of times it's it's like, oh, look, we have that. They yeah. call that tokenism. Yes. So I see so much, even amongst my peers. So when you were talking about cross-criticizing, I don't think I answered that correctly, but I think it's so important in the white community specifically, criticism needs to be made if it's with the intention of, of understanding more fully. I spend a lot of time now catching almost everything that some people are saying, where it's just like, do you realize how racist, do you realize how, do you see that? I know I'm learning, tell me when I'm doing it. Because <laughs> um, change can't be made unless you're, you're, you're calling out, you, you can, say what parts are great, but also, hey, these parts still need to be worked on. Um, so within the, the Canadian culture, there's a whole lot of, aren't we lovely? And not a lot of actually acting lovely. Like the, the I don't know if you, <laughs> I see you nodding. So <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, oh, this is happening. Like a lot of talk about the missing Indigenous women, but a lot of studies done and then just that's it <laughs> it's still happening <laughs> even along the lines even along the lines of systemic racism our prime minister was like yeah we i think we have systemic racism and it went to the house of commons our one bipoc member leader of a party you know he addresses it one man one white very white french man said no he our leader that the leader of this political party then called him racist and gets kicked out get kicked mm -hmm. out of the house of commons the only bipoc leader gets kicked out of the house of commons for calling somebody racist when he should be at the table since the table was conversating about systemic racism and then that particular mp said we need to have I don't believe systemic racism exists. We need to have a, we need to look into that. We need an inquiry first before we can go ahead with a movement about whether or not we need to decide first. So like Canada in so many ways is worse off than the United States, in my opinion, because we have that blanket of niceness. The wow. world even goes, oh, Canada, you're so nice. And so we just hide underneath it and go, those Americans in the United States are so racist. We're so beautiful <laughs> and happy and friendly up here in the Canada, and it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, we're still actively so, colonizing. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna end with a with a controversial question in a, a modified uh, quote from Mark, Martin Luther King. So, uh, for the three of you. You mean the other questions weren't controversial? <laughs> do, do you prefer someone who's racist to your face or someone who is polite 
and Pleasant, and then there are races behind Closed Door. 100% to my face. Yeah, to it's my a face. much safer racism to experience because when somebody's racist to your face, you know to just like stay away from them. Um, I'm half white, so I recently just had like a huge issue with some of my family members realizing that they have some very strong racist beliefs. And in so they believe I'm white racist. So, you know, we can't really get along <laughs> anymore. But um, that was way harder for me to deal with because I didn't know it existed. And it just suddenly surprised me like one of those Jack in the Box toys from back in the day, you know? So the overt racist, like, if you are openly racist, I know to just keep some space from you. That's very safe for me. I would much prefer that. How about you, Gerald? Uh, I mean, I prefer to know up, see it, and hear it up front. But I got to tell you, um, looking back pre-Trump, <laughs> it was I, I, I actually enjoyed not experiencing so much in-your-face racism. <laughs> so that's that's, that's a back that's, that's the backdrop of answer. But um, but I would rather I would rather deal with it up front then be surprised by it <laughs> later for sure definitely angela i know what you're gonna say we can't have the healing start unless we see it in front of us right you so know because i was i was also just gonna say i hear i hear fuck i swear so much um yes to my face if you're hiding it there's no truth it's not as it is what are we what's this isn't even real it's not you know if you're racist say it but then there's gerald it's that it's it's when you're healing from trauma you can't oh you have to you know to, to have it it's gonna hurt it, it's it's not a nice thing it's not a it's not a so to have it continually so remembering to take that care, like the, yeah, what you said. <laughs> I'm tired and I get really tired. <laughs> I kind of feel like though also that, you know, it, in some ways it really doesn't matter because I'm going to, I know I'm going to react in not in the same way, but I know that my, whether they're racist or not, um, it's not going to impact on the way that I present myself or the, so I don't know. But in our nonviolent communication uh, program, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is what it does do, though, is it changes the support in the room. So when you have an overt racist in the room, like, say, for instance, you're in a room with a full-on KKK member, and you stand up for yourself, almost everybody in the room who is not overtly racist that just is systemically racist will 100% come to you to your defense but the covert racist that you experience in the daily at least this is my experience that's the one that you end up getting gaslighted about so you know if if somebody is giving you microaggressions and then you stand up for yourself i find that most of the time then i'm the one who's being told to settle down i took it the wrong way you misunderstood that's not what they meant so then i end up being told that i my experience wasn't right and that i was wrong in my feelings of oppression so you know that's the that's another reason that i think that overt racism is much easier to manage well, we'll have a whole conversation about microaggressions in our next conversation but uh, to the jobless. <laughs> what? Yeah. So we're having more of this. <laughs> I know it's dramatic, but uh, I, I want to uh, publicly invite uh, the jobless leader of the um, not very polite movement of America, who has been spewing a lot of um, dog whistle insults and racial conversation, to join us in our circle of love. Uh, now that he doesn't have anything going on, uh, he can come and, and we can give him nonviolent uh, communication techniques on how to maybe when you spew so much hatred, maybe it's because you have hatred in your heart and you need to heal and get that out. A lot of people would just dismiss people like that and be like, ah, oh, they're, they're gone, too far gone. But, you know, who knows what kind of insecurities, issues people are dealing with. So uh, this goes to Canada. So 
when Martin Luther King was speaking against the Vietnam War, he said, how can we um, send people over there to hurt the Vietnamese? Uh, and we're worried about the Vietnamese because what they were saying is they're being taken over by communists, they're being oppressed by the Viet Cong. We need to go liberate them. When here in America, our own people are being oppressed. So, Mr. Uh, Curdo, what's his name? Your president? Your prime minister? Trudeau. Trudeau. So, Mr. Trudeau is famous for inviting refugees to come and stay with the Canadians and to uh, make room for all the oppressed of the world. And from what I hear, he doesn't care about the oppressed people who are there. So, that breaks my heart and it just shows that we haven't learned anything. I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so th thank you so much. Thank you for, uh, it's a very painful conversation, but one that needs to be had. And um, hopefully uh, people will, will will hear what we have to say and and come with us in this journey. So thank you again for, for participating. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this and I enjoyed the, invitation to I'm very happy to be part of this conversation. Thank you. I'm, I'm even happier that uh, the uh, tech issues didn't shut it down <laughs> early <laughs> on. So thank you. Love you guys. Uh, thanks so much for, for doing this and hopefully it won't be a, another month. I know Angela is super busy, but hopefully we can do this in a couple of weeks. Whenever you, I'm open. I'm so grateful to be having these conversations and thank you so much for facilitating tonight so, for instigating this whole thing. Originally we had thought about, you know, an art project and then I think we might still be organically building, but this is a part of the process and we're going to be something that. So yes, this is going live. It doesn't, maybe this will be what it is. Maybe we'll have a certain amount of conversations together and that will be the project or maybe something else will end up coming from this, but I feel to answer the question that if, if you're open to it, yes, let's share this. If everyone is. I'm ready to go protest in Canada. <laughs> I have to go during the summer. Because I don't like the cold. Yes, uh, please. <laughs> so. It, Canada, Canada was going to be my escape from the U.S., but I can't go there now. <laughs> yeah. Well, they might like us because we're we're refugees. They, they don't like the locals. Maybe. They're not so good with different, that's a whole other conversation, but the Chinese culture is very, there's a whole lot of different kinds of racism in, in Vancouver specifically, because that's where I've seen the most of right now. But Well, let me ask you, do they have a Mexican restaurant in Vancouver? Yes. <laughs> yes, there's quite a few. Well, it might not be real Mexican, but I'll take well, it. That's, there's, a, there's a couple that are real. There's a few that are. A Taco Bell. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. There's a yeah. Uh, no, but um um, just you know, horrible thought before we go. Um, there's a movement of people who are very um like hateful and xenophobic in America, and the the guy who's leaving office right now walked in into that movement. It's like he's the opposite of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King became the leader of a movement for civil rights and, and justice. This guy became a leader of horrible people. So I, I will see what we can do for Canada. Hopefully that won't happen in Canada. Yeah. So did we lose Amber? I think so. Yeah. Bye. Okay. We're well, getting late. So. Yeah. Good night. Yeah, we, can, we can only handle this so much. So take care. Thank you. All right. I'll get your photo to you. Yeah. Virtual hug. Yeah, virtual hug, Gerald. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to speak with you both again. I love, I just love this, our relationship's growing. It's wonderful. So. I love you too, Andrew. Yeah. Hopefully I didn't say anything. Or as, as a, to give you a sense of pride and, and to move forward. So um, I reached out to my artist friend, Angela Fama, to help me uh, look into how can we discuss this in a, the most creative way? Originally, it was going to be an art project, but I think that 
this is kind of like brainstorming to get there or the a different uh, expression of it. I feel that uh, sometimes these big ideas take forever to come about and I don't think there's any time to waste. I think we should like jump on it and people come to me and this is, we'll talk about this throughout the, the series. 